Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, listeners. I am Chris Cotter, and I am joined via Skype by... David Robertson. Yes, we have been visited by the beast from the east, and we are snowed in. Exactly. The the university in Edinburgh is shut. The whole city seems to have effectively shut down, except for except for my uh, my poor wife who's had to go into the, the camera obscura because tourism doesn't tourism stop. Tourism doesn't stop, right? But the schools are closed, so we've got a house full here. Um, but it's it's a lot of fun. It looks like the Russians have hacked the weather and trying <laughs> trying to influence the Brexit <laughs> process. Exactly. Um, so we'll probably not prattle on too much, listeners, because the sound quality won't be fantastic. But um, this week's um, interview is conducted by Brianne Fallon, and it's with uh, Professor Doug Ezzy on um, good grief, question marks, rituals of world repairing. So we're looking forward to this from Brianne and Douglas. Just take it away. How do we deal with death and grief in our contemporary context? Do we avoid talking about death and grief? Is there a possibility for good grief? What role do symbols and rituals play in managing bereavement? To talk about this topic, I have with me today Professor Doug Ezzi of the University of Tasmania. He is editor of the Journal for the Academic Study of Religion and president of the Australian Association for the Study of Religion. His research on contemporary religion includes religious diversity, contemporary paganisms and Christianity. His books include LGBT Christians with Bronwyn Fielder, Reinventing Church with um, Helen and James Collins, Sex, Death and Witchcraft, Teenage Witches with Helen Berger, and Qualitative Analysis. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, To begin, I was hoping you could give us some context for this discussion about death and grief in, in the contemporary well, do we avoid it? Um, are we focusing on something else instead? Um, what sort of context do you think we're sitting in? Uh, I guess for me the first move to make is uh, I'm struck by the way in which we're not talking about the grief or the sadness associated with climate change. Um, when I look forward over the next few decades, they seem to me to be a time of dramatic loss. We're already experiencing quite profound losses, um, you can talk about you know, refugees and migration as a consequence of climate change, or more broadly about you know, species extinction. The rate of species extinction at the moment is extraordinary. Um, and and you know, also the costs associated with the failures of neoliberalism. So there's a whole bunch of things that look to me to, like, to be dramatic losses, and I don't see many responses in our contemporary culture to those things. They, it seems... It seems strange or odd or bizarre. Why are all these, you know, sad losses happening and we're not responding to them? They just get noted, maybe, and then we don't move on. Like for me, one quite personal one that I've noticed, I'm a Tasmanian, I'm born there, I go back generations. For me, I have a profound sense of relationship with Tasmania's place. And there was... Um, some, some seaweed along the east coast of Tasmania, really large kelp forests that would cover large areas. And in the last few years, they've gone. And that's a product of the warming waters. Along, and for me, that's really sad because I used to swim in them, you know, we used to fish in them and they're gone. You know, so there's this, how do I make sense of that? How do I respond to that? And that very personal experience is, reflects a much broader cultural experience, I think, of, of loss and change that we're not responding to. 
So while I don't think we're a death-denying society, which some people sort of talk about, I do think that there's something odd going on with the way that we're not responding to grief and loss. Right. So um, when you say there's something going on with the way we're sort of not responding to it, um, do you think we're, you know, focusing on, on something else? Um, success, perhaps? Yeah, that's right. So I, I think that we're part of a culture that is a sort of a heroic success mythology. Um, and I think you see that both in religious culture and in business culture, um, and to a lesser extent also in medical ways of understanding the self. So, um, for example, here in Australia, Hillsong is a really big, popular Pentecostal um, church, and um, my friend and colleague Helen Collins did a, um, a content analysis of their music. Mm. And what she found was that in Hillsong, they never sing about grief, loss or sadness. Mm. Uh, the, the, the songs of Hillsong are all about the love and joy and power of God leading into a successful life. If you compare that with the Australian hymn book, um, Jesus is there present with you walking through the valley of death or through your difficult dark times. Mm-hmm. So our religious cultures tend to be ones that celebrate success and overcoming and joy and are afraid or um, shy away from sadness and death and loss. And you see the same sort of thing in economic and business narratives, whether you talk about um, um, uh, autobiographies, um, there's Mary Gergen's study of American best-selling autobiographies and all the men's stories in those biographies are stories about success and um, there's not much space for ambiguity or loss or those sorts of things and also in the business papers it's all about success and, and overcoming and achievement so mm. I think while there are experiences and stories of loss we still bury people you know all those sorts of things are still there uh, I don't think we've got very many constructive cultural resources for dealing with um, the, the, the experiences of loss that I see coming and they're already here. I think there's something strange going mm. on there in the tension between the two. There seems to be, um, you're talking about those business magazines in particular, sort of a real focus on, on the eye and the individual person and I was wondering if that sort of played into this. Um, yeah, look. There's a, there's a broader story there about how we understand ourselves in the contemporary West, in inverted commas, uh, that tends to be very individualistic. Um, and I think that when we look to Indigenous cultures or the Buddhist concept of codependent arising or social theory like um, the interactionist tradition or hermeneutics, um, that talk about a more relational, um, distributed understanding of the self. And so I think that um, moving away from a sort of heroic narrative is also about moving towards a more complex understanding of what it is to be human. So um, for me, my sociology, I call it a relational theory of religion. There's a whole bunch of people writing about that at the moment. uh, particularly like um, Graham Harvey's um, Food, Sex and Strangers, but there's there's a bunch of other people who are trying to think about religion more as a, a relational um, um, practised achievement rather than about individuals who believe. Mm. Um, uh, so 
it, it's we'll, we'll get on to thinking about death and loss and sadness. But certainly for for me, I think we need to think more in that way, and and to think about religion in that way because when we think about religion as a relational practice rather than individuals believing, then I think symbols, including symbols of loss and sadness, um, play a different role. They're not about individuals believing in a symbol that represents something, which is the sort of modernist, individualistic understanding of religion. Rather, I think about religion as um, or religious symbols as things that draw people into relationships. Um, so, you know, for me, the interesting thing about how symbols operate in religious practice is about what relationships they draw people into rather than what beliefs or objects they represent. Yeah. So do you have sort of a key example of that that you maybe wanted to share with us? <laughs> so I can talk about um, Durkheim's uh, Elementary Forms of the Religious Life where he does, you know, like the Sharinga is the key um, ritual object that uh, Aboriginal Australians in the corroboree rite that he talks about in the Elementary Forms of the Religious Life. The Sharinga is the symbol that he focuses on. And he says that the Aboriginals are uh, mistaken or misguided um, because the Sharinga is fabricated and therefore not real. And he thinks they're delusional because they believe in the Sharinga. I think that completely misunderstands what's going on for the Aboriginals. It's not that they believe in the Sharinga. It's that the Sharinga is an important part of their ritual that articulates their relationship to the land. And, and um, uh, I think Durkheim misunderstands the role of the Sharinga in the ritual. Um, he, he says it really you know, represents the tribe, and it probably does represent the tribe, but it articulates the relationship between the individual and the tribe and the individual and the land. And so when we understand symbols as articulating relationships and ethical responsibilities, they make sense. It doesn't really make sense to say they're delusional, their belief is wrong, because the symbol articulates relationship, and so it's not true or false in that sort of modernist way. Rather, it's significant or not significant because it articulates relationship and draws people into relationships. So, you know, that's how I think about, about symbols. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Um, you gave another really sort of interesting example um, this morning, for those of you who are listening, we're at the Australian Association and New Zealand Association of uh, Religion Conference at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, this morning you talked about the Velveteen Rabbit and it really just, for me, having read read the book, um, it was just a really fabulous example of what you're talking about. So um, my dear friend, um, Professor Alan Kelleher, wrote a book called uh, Experiences Near Death 
And in that book, he devotes a whole chapter to The Velveteen Rabbit, which is a children's story from 1922 by Marjorie Williams. And in, in the story, for those of you that don't know it, there's a young boy who has a toy rabbit that he really loves. And the young boy gets scarlet fever and is ill for a number of weeks. And then the adults decide that the rabbit, the toy rabbit, is infected with germs and needs to be destroyed. And in the story, rather than the rabbit being destroyed, the rabbit becomes real and goes and lives with the rabbits at the end of the garden. And it's a beautiful story um, because it's a story about how a symbol, not really a religious symbol in this case, but a symbol um, draws the child into a sense of confidence and love. Um, it's like the rabbit allows the, the young boy to feel like he's still loved. And I think that's really important and interesting, you know, rather than, like, does the rabbit really become real? I think that's the wrong question to ask. You completely misunderstand what's going on for the child and the relationship. Are we, are we tricking the child and deluding them with false beliefs? That's to misunderstand that the rabbit articulates the confidence that the child will continue to be loved and cared for. And so when you see the rabbit in that way, the, the idea that the rabbit becomes real is a story that draws the child into living more confidently and hopefully in the world. So the symbol operates to draw people into relationships. And I think that's how symbols operate. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, I think that um, it's a really amazing example of kind of what you're talking about in this idea of sort of the rabbit being part of, I think the words you used were, were world repairing. Yes. Is that the, the words you used? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the idea of world repairing, I'm still trying to think through exactly what that means because I think symbols are subjunctive, if you like, um, which is the concept that Seligman and his associate use in Ritual and Its Consequences. Um, they talk about um, the way in which religion has a subjunctive aspect to it. And I think symbols can be thought of that way in the sense that they create an as-if. And by performing and relating them to, the, to them in that way, they draw you into possible worlds. So if you think of you know, somebody who's, um, uh, whose parent dies, for, for example, then the ritual and the symbol of believing in the afterlife burying in an earth or whatever it is, is well repairing in, in the sense that it allows you to live with that grief and loss. So, um, you know, the grief and loss is still sad, it still hurts, but it's bearable somehow. And so I think symbols operate to work with our emotions, um, with those parts of ourselves that it's really hard to articulate um, because we're not all cognitive and rational. Like We can't always explain things, what we believe. Uh, you know, there are, there are emotions, there are experiences that are powerful, that shape us in, in really important ways. And the way to work with them is symbolically, not necessarily cognitively. Yeah, I mean, you can go to therapy and, you know, you know and some, for some people that works. That's great. Um, but for other people, we need symbols that allow us to work with those parts of our lives that we find it hard to articulate. So the example that I gave in my talk as I showed a picture of a little toy rabbit um, that was given to my son when he was born. And the toy rabbit, for me, it sat there on my bedside table for now for about 10 years. My daughter um, created a little bed out of a cardboard box. And the toy rabbit, for me, 
articulates or symbolizes my relationship with my children. And I only really realized this when I wrote this paper. I'd been thinking about this rabbit and thinking, oh, it's just a toy, I'll get rid of it. But then I thought, no, actually, it's important to me. And sort of reflecting on it, it articulates a bunch of things about the way that I relate to my children. So it's important to me. So I think, you know, rabbits and toys and symbols, religious symbols, you know, crosses or Buddhas or whatever they are, you know, they, they help us. They don't, you say, I, the trick here, there's, a, there's an awkward tension between what might sound like a moral project and what is a descriptive project because religion is a moral act. And, um, and uh, if religion is a moral act, then I'm not necessarily saying what I think you should do. I'm not making moral claims here. What I'm trying to do is describe what I see as a moral practice within religion. Um, and I think religion and religious symbols articulate um, the possible. And that when we don't do that, that creates certain sorts of problems for us. You know, like if we don't articulate positive possible worlds, then we get drawn into angry or despairing or frustrated possible worlds. Mm. And you gave some sort of interesting examples to help us think about this this morning. Um, the one that really sort of s- struck to me as somebody who didn't live through it was Diana's death because yep. I've never sort of really understood the fascination with that uh, because I wasn't alive. Yeah. Um, so for me, that one has always been something that didn't, I've never been able to understand until you really talked about it this morning and the process of that grieving sort of started to make a bit more sense to me. Oh, good. Yeah. So, um, like, why did it make sense? Can I? I, I think that I think for me it was that idea of what you said about, um, you know, there's that image that um, with all the flowers in front of, I think it's Kensington Palace, and you know, just the act of laying the flowers. Those people didn't really know Diana, but then they've gone to do that, and it, you know, that act of, you know, they never knew her, but actually going and laying the flowers and how that would have made them, as you say, kind of deal with that yeah. and there's some sort of sense to it yeah so there's a whole literature on diana and whether she was a, a, a goddess or a false goddess and you know there's all sorts of critiques of you know her as a problematic representation of femininity and that sort of stuff but for a lot of people um the laying of the flowers or the remembering of diana uh, diana becomes a symbol of their own experience of grief or their own experience of loss of someone they've loved or the way that they understand themselves as a woman. And so the practice allows themselves to articulate a, a really important experience of grief. Um, sometimes it has good outcomes, sometimes it has problematic aspects to it. But I think as, as people who study religion, it's really in, important to understand that symbol as something that operates to articulate relationships and help people um, uh, articulate emotions as well. Um, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think um, it's really fascinating, this idea of, of the ritual. There may be some people out there who kind of have a problem with focusing so much on actions and not thought. Is there anything you wanted to sort of say to that? <sighs> Look, um, I, I don't want to say beliefs are irrelevant. I think... For some people, beliefs clearly operate in really important and powerful ways, particularly in some forms of Protestant traditions, but also in other religious traditions. But I think the focus on belief often misunderstands a lot of what religious people do, that religions become important because of the way they 
um, fit into our lives, the practices and the symbols and the rituals allow us to to um, find ourselves, to build relationships, and and the the beliefs are sort of secondary or part of what's going on, but they're not primary. So I think the sort of the the idea of religion as believing in something and then you do and then perform misunderstands what's going on. That we find ourselves in relationships, we work out etiquettes or ways of relating to each other and they're articulated by symbols and then we articulate beliefs and ethical frameworks on top of that that justify what we're doing. So that's the way that I'd see it. Yeah, I think you've given us so much to think about in terms of sort of how we understand Religion, and particularly in a, in a modern context, the thing that really came up to me uh, in when you were talking this morning was um, the idea of sort of avoiding death via social media, like keeping a person's fa- Facebook profile like going yeah. sort of after they they die. This sort of real sort of complex way of how we deal with death, sort of in a modern context. Indeed, um, we've run out of time. So, is there anything you wanted to just finish up with? Um, no. Thank you very much for the opportunity and um, it's, it's been great. Right. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much to Doug Essie there. Um, we've been looking forward to having him on the podcast for quite a while. And thanks, of course, to Brianne, our uh, Australia editor, um, becoming a stalwart ed- uh, interviewer here at the Religious Studies Project. I'm not, I'm not sure if we've got any news or anything to announce at the moment, Chris, do we? Not really. I mean, I, I've confirmed my my attendance at the uh, the EASR um, in June in Bern in Switzerland. Uh, and we've got uh, a couple of others joining us there, uh, Tom White and Sammy Bishop. So we'll have a good um, RSP team. I've also booked on to the, uh, the NSRN conference um, in London in July. So uh, all of these... Um, podcast-tastic times i think absolutely we'll need to make sure we've got some badges and stuff to take with us we've still got lots of notebooks with the um, conference bingo uh in as well so i'll i'll be giving somebody a bag of those to take uh to take with them to easr i'm talking of conferences i'm just back well i'm back a week from the contemporary religion and historical perspective conference at the OU, um which was a lot of fun and we have a couple of interviews from there coming up and um, a couple of videos as well. Uh, Jonathan Tuckett he was there armed with a camera and doing his thing, tucketing up a storm. So um, look forward to a lot of material coming there. Fantastic. Yes, we really do. Um, so, listeners, um, next week we've got a special treat for you. Um, we mentioned a few weeks ago that the committee of the BASR were in Edinburgh um, for a meeting and to deliver a um, a seminar. Um, so we have a special recording of that uh, seminar for you next week. We're calling it the BASR and the impact of religious studies. So um, that's myself and David, Dr. Steve Sutcliffe, Dr. Susanna Owen, and Dr. Stephen Gregg. Uh, yeah, and unbelievably that's Stephen Gregg's first appearance where it hasn't been uh, one of our Christmas specials. <laughs> we have been planning to have him on to talk about uh, Scientology, but uh, we keep uh, needing to reschedule. But that will happen. That's supposed to be happening at the BASR this year. Um, so, but yes, uh, next week, a uh, very interesting little panel. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see what 
folk make of it. I suspect that the British um, perspective of this won't be the same as it is in the US or Africa or Asia or anywhere else. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what our uh, what our audience has to, to chime in on. Exactly. But um, for now, uh, from our respective um, residences via the wonders of Skype, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.